0: When people say I sell to I sell to mid-sized enterprise software companies, I'm like, do you sell to a building? Like are you sell, are you selling to a building with windows and and steel and brick? No, I don't think so. Like there are human beings behind every purchase.
1: Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger for optimizing business performance scaling up organizations, corporate culture, customer addiction, building high-performing teams, along with a few other obsessions. I've spent the last several years working for and with some of the most successful top-performing companies in the world, and this podcast is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a higher quality business and live a more fulfilling life. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find more information on today's episode. We do cracking show notes. They're at DominicMonkhouse.com. Hello, today I'm talking at a million miles an hour to the irrepressible Deb Gabor. I think the only danger with us chatting today is that we could have gone on all day. Deb said to me at the beginning, the one thing she's not short of is an opinion In fact, an opinion on every topic. But today the topic is branding and that's her specialist subject. She's written two books on the topic and has consulted with tech firms across the US for many years. Her first book was Branding is Sex, get your customers laid and sell the hell out of anything. And at the heart of the conversation we have about that book today is understanding your core customer as a person and understanding what your customer needs to do to get laid. And if you can get that, if you can work that out and if you can get that to them, you can get what you want from the relationship. And her second book is Irrational Loyalty. And she's on a mission to help a a million businesses, I'm going to say a thousand, a million businesses to build their brands and create irrational loyalty in their customers. And she confesses herself to be irrationally loyal to Apple saying that she feels dirty if she even just thinks about changing her phone. So a fantastic conversation, high pace, high energy. I really enjoyed it. I'm sure you will too.
0: I'm Deb Gabor. I am the author of Branding is Sex, Get Your Customer Laid and Sell the Hell Out of Anything, and also Irrational Loyalty. And I have a company. I'm the CEO and founder of a brand strategy and market research firm in Austin, Texas in the USA. And I'm in the business of creating this condition that I call irrational loyalty. And Dominic, I know you've heard me talk a little bit about this, but irrational loyalty is that condition where people are so indelibly bonded to a brand that they'd feel like they were cheating on it. If they were to choose a competitor or an alternative, it's how I feel about my iPhone. It's how I feel about my crazy looking, highly comfortable, clunky running shoes called Hoka One One. But these are the things that, when I use a competitor's product, make me feel dirty. And so I'm in the business of creating those conditions, which can sustain brands for the long term, make them grow profitably, rapidly, and in a highly, highly focused way.
1: And do, they, do those brands, the things you mentioned there are B2C, can we do the same thing in B2B? Is, is, there, is there actually a distinction? Is it the same thing?
0: It is exactly the same thing. I appreciate that you asked that question because this is kind of the biggest dilemma, and we've actually seen this—we've uh, seen this accelerate during the pandemic and you know social justice movement that has been picking up steam again. So, 100% that condition of irrational loyalty exists in businesses as well. Here's the big mistake that most businesses make, and that is thinking that when they create a brand, they're actually selling to a company. They're selling to the entire company. They're not selling to the company. They're not selling to the procurement department. They're selling to the people who actually use the brand. And the people behind decisions in other businesses are not nameless, faceless automatons. These are human beings just like you, just like me. I own a business. I'm sitting in my office here today. I am surrounded by products that I have purchased for my business. And the the great thing about the best B2B brands in the world is that they actually become part of the person who uses them. So uh, when I have seen B2B brands be very, very successful, it's when they have created that condition of irrational loyalty. Good example I use is Salesforce, for instance, incredible B2B brand. They basically created the category of SaaS, right? And By being an industry disruptor and by aligning themselves with the sales leader and permeating that person's psyche and becoming part of that person and elevating that person's self-concept, giving them bragging rights for bringing off-premise, cloud-based CRM software into their business, uh, they've been able to take over the world and actually establish category leadership that everybody else is, is trying to catch up and imitate.
1: And are there, are you got any other examples of, of business to business?
0: Yeah, hundred percent. Um, so Back in the days when I had a job a long, long time ago, and the reason I'm an entrepreneur is because I make a very terrible employee. Like I have problems with authority unless of course it's me. So it was manifest destiny that I would have my own company. But there was a time when I had a job and I worked for one of those companies that does the research studies that measures the financial contribution of brand value to the overall capitalization of A brand and on the list of like the top 100 most valuable global brands are brands like Oracle, brands like SAP, Accenture, brands like that that you wouldn't expect have this incredible brand equity. Um, Those are great brands that have been able to sort of permeate the user. In my business, I work exclusively with B2B brands, so even though I love consumer brands and I write a lot about consumer brands and I've had lots of consumer brand experience, the less sexy the category or the industry, the more I want to do business with them. And this is from the lady who wrote the book that has sex and laid in the title. So, oil field test and measurement and production equipment, um, healthcare construction, uh, you know, uh, the photovoltaics that go inside of solar panels. I love that shit.
1: So, here's my experience with particularly somebody like the photovoltaic guys. Uh, Business probably started by some technical people who were really smart and they think that their stuff is better features list of things. They're trying to sell
0: a better mousetrap. You can't sell a better mousetrap unless people know mice are a problem.
1: Yes. So so how do you, how do you, if you take that example, how do you, because I see it all the time. The technical people have got this long list and like they say, rationally, if people were buying on features, we've got a longer feature set.
0: Who cares? Nobody cares about features, honestly. So um, this is the reason why I've been successful at this. And actually, I'll tell you the story real quick. Branding of sex is a metaphor. And where that was developed was um years and years ago back in the days when I had a job again one of the companies that I worked with was sun microsystems do you remember them selling server operating systems and servers and you know sort of worse than plumbing for the internet kinds of stuff and they had this very charismatic technical leader and I sat in front of this guy trying to explain to him that if you're trying to market a server operating system on the basis of bits and bytes and speeds and feeds that's like selling ice cream by saying it's cold and it's sweet right and it doesn't differentiate you and it doesn't it doesn't help you sort of carve out your unique role and relevance and he argued with me until he was blue in the face and this guy went on but, you know, post-leadership at Sun Microsystems went to Google. He's a very, very well-known person. And I sat in front of him, and in a fit of frustration, I looked at him and said, Tell me again, how does the server operating system get that IT guy laid? And he rolled back in his chair and he said, Oh, I totally get it. All right. So our industry leading reliability and uptime and the fact that that this is. Sort of government highly classified grade ensures he's not going to get a call in the middle of the night. It also ensures that uh, when people in the field are are accessing accessing the server, the data is available to them in real time, and the salespeople can sell more stuff more confidently. That makes the guy who made that decision to bring this in here look less like a cost center to the organization and make him look like an innovative, forward-thinking leader who's thinking about growing the business versus costing the business. And so he went through this whole thing. So what that comes down to is... That I mean, you're 100% right. If businesses are marketing on the basis of speeds and feeds and bits and bytes, that would be like selling a car by saying, This car has tires, right?
1: Or that it has Michelin tires. And like, no, I say to people all the time, What, what tires are on your car? And nine times, out, nine times out of 10 people go, I have no idea, whatever it
0: came with. So the best brands in the world are the ones that become part of the person who uses them. And what they do, whether they're consumer brands or they're business-to-business brands, they do just four things. One is they aim their brand at this singular ideal archetypal customer. They figure out who is this brand made for? Who is the customer who's most highly predictive of our success? That if we capture like just 1% of these people on earth, they're going to be so incredibly loyal that our business is going to grow in margin. It's going to grow in footprint. People will know who it is, what it is, but at least they know what we stand for. And then they answer the three questions. What does it say about them that they buy this brand? What is the one thing that they get from this brand that they can't get from any other brand? And here's here's a clue. It's never a feature. It is never ever ever a feature, the thing that makes your brand singular, and then the third question, which is the sex question, how do you make your customer a hero in their own story? The best brands in the world, regardless of what category they're in, they do that it's four things it's just those four things
1: but even I was just thinking as you were describing uh, the ideal customer for a Sun Microsystems server, you know you said it's those people who are you know want to be seen as profit centers, want to be seen as sort of leading edge, immediately you're either that or you want to be that. And so immediately it's like, okay, so now we can see what sliver of the number of IT managers in the world that could potentially be our ideal customer.
0: And not all of them are, right? Not all of them are. So, a company that we work with extensively is Dell, and you know that's a huge global company. We work only on the B two B side of their business. So, you know, it's going to be uh, servers and workstations and and blade servers and storage and archiving and cloud solutions and you know cloud client computing, like blah blah, blah blah blah, like all of all of those kinds of things. And we think about who is the ideal customer for those things. Now, not Every IT leader wants to be seen as innovative. Not every IT leader wants to give their company the power to do more. Some IT people want to sit in the background and they want to, you know, they want to sit in their cubicle and they want to be quiet and they want to be behind the spreadsheets and they want to be answering the calls. That is not our ideal customer. And so when you know who your ideal customer is and what they aspire to in their lives and what is the story that they're trying to tell about their lives, then you can aim your brand directly. Directly at their beliefs and values, right? We can tell them you are an innovative IT leader who wants to create a footprint, not just in your business, but in your industry. That's why you would use something like this. We almost never talk about the features and functionality until you get much, much further down the funnel. But people make decisions not with their brains. Like 95% of decision-making actually happens in the gut or the heart or the genitals. And the further down the body you get, the bigger the margins are.
1: <laughs> can you talk more about the, the work you do with Dell?
0: Yeah, I can talk. I can talk about the work that we do. with them.
1: But before we do that, I, I've got one of the things that I, the conversa- I start having this conversation with people. And of course, they, they have described who their ideal customer is. And I've gone back to them and said, basically, you're trying to sell everything to everybody. Which means that's what that, that's why you're selling nothing to nobody.
0: Yeah, they're like it's for men between the ages of eighteen and fifty six who like outdoor sports and and I think we met probably at a big conference or something like that. Like I routinely speak to a room of a thousand people. Like that's what I do, and so when people give me that cop out you know, core customer description. I was like, all right, everyone in the room who's between the ages of 18 and 34 and you identify as a man, and you like outdoor sports raise your hand. And so you have like 750 people in the room raise their hand. And then I'm like, what kind of sport do you like? How old are you? How, you know, suffer from any erectile dysfunction for instance? How about you? You look young and hot, but and and so you start to see the differences between people. The way that I make my clients do their ideal customer profile, I make them draw it. I make them draw it. I make them give that person a name. I make them picture who that person looks like because the beauty of this exercise is that you have an idea of who that human being is. Like for my business, for our company, we actually have an ideal customer archetype profile. Her name is Lindsay. She's based largely on the amalgamation of our three favoritist clients that we've worked with over the 17 years that I've had this, this company. And I just talked to the actual, the real Lindsay yesterday and she reminded me why you know she inspired this ideal customer. But we have a drawing of her and we have like a big cardboard cutout. We bring her to a meeting with us. When we do strategy work, when we have our strategic planning sessions every quarter, we are bringing Lindsay into the room with us. And It gives us this relentless focus so that when I meet really shitty potential clients, I know that they're shitty and I know exactly why. Because maybe they only embody like 40% of the qualities that makes a client ideal. And when I have seen organizations scale rapidly and grow profitably and and have a, a happy life, it's been when they've figured out who this ideal customer is and doubled down on that.
1: And so, can you describe Lindsay?
0: I can. All right, and uh, you know, if this were a different kind of show, I'd actually, I'd actually show you the picture. So, Lindsay. <laughs> So, so Lindsay, for instance, the way that we depicted Lindsay, we depicted her in her environment. So we know a little bit about her life too. So she lives in an environment. She has a whole bunch of people behind her who are her raving fans. She is the chief marketing officer of a mid cap, high growth enterprise software company and she, I've worked with her now at three different companies. She's somebody that we've been with as she's been building her career. She's wearing a big medal on her chest because she is an award-winning, innovative marketer. She has been recognized not just by her company, but she's been recognized by the industry, and she's been recognized by by the marketing category as somebody who has really really smart ideas she's very very strategic she does not have time for a lot of stuff she has a tree next to her in the picture and the tree has roots that are going out and on the tree is a sign that says I love soul marketing like she is dedicated to us and works sort of part of her family and her roots as she grows She also has in her office, she has like a bullseye with some arrows in it because she is a person who is extremely focused and goal oriented. She's got a couple of charts around her that always the graphs are going up and to the right because that's how we want the graphs to go. She's just very, very growth minded. But the magical thing about this picture is that she has in her hand what we call the golden shovel. And the golden shovel is the thing that she uses that when we come to her, when we drive her with innovation and with great ideas that push her to the next level, she grabs that golden shovel and she can always dig for more budget. So I just described a lot of about a lot about her values, right? and You know, other things to note is she's a 45 year old woman. She is wearing very, very fashionable clothing. Like she is, she is very put together. So we, we understand a lot about her down to like what kind of shoes a person wears, you know, are they wearing work boots or are they wearing Ferragamos? You know, like what are they wearing? You, you understand a little bit about them. I know her values so innately that when we go to try to use our values as a magnet to attract more people that want to be Lindsay or who are Lindsay, it's like this, this like ray of attraction where people are like, yes, I want to be like that. I also can recognize if somebody comes in the door and I'm like, whoa, that person is not strategic. That person needs what we have, but they can't use it. They want to be too hands-on. They want to be too controlling. My my number one competitor works directly across the street from me. I sit in front of this gorgeous picture window and there's a busy road in between me, but I see my competitors. I see her her sign in front of my face every day. And I say that she's my competitor she does exactly what I do. Like she has ex- she has exactly the same business that I do. She's my competitor in that when, you know, when the Austin Business Journal puts out their list of, you know, uh top women-owned companies or top marketing and advertising agencies, we're always neck and neck, right? We've been doing this this dance for like 10 years. However, the same people who hire her are not the people who hire us because what she does is she works with challenger brands. She works with brands that are like trying to push the status quo and and are, are trying to move up a couple slots. Therefore, the way that they service their clients is vastly different from how we service our clients. People hire her to take a marketing train, put it on the tracks and keep it running and keep it running, keep it running, which that is legit. That is not the business that I'm in. People hire us because they have a lot at stake to get it right. They're in growth mode. They're like in grow or die mindset. They have a critical inflection point for their business and they do not have time to waste. And they're not looking for an extension of their marketing team. I work with the executives. I don't work with the marketing team. I work with the executives and what they get from us that they don't get from her is they get a kick in the ass. That is what people hire us for. And so When you understand the essence of how those things are different, even if the functional benefits and the functionality and the features and the speeds and feeds and the footprint and all that kind of stuff is exactly the same, and you kind of internalize that story, you understand the essence of what a brand means, especially in the B2B space. Well, and
1: not only that, you can be over the road from each other and you can be frenemies because you're selling your are you together yeah it's you've got a different your lindsay and their fran are are different people at different stages of their career in different businesses yeah exactly and uh yeah okay so i think that's really really helpful cuz they, they when i speak to clients not the first problem i mentioned was that they don't want to limit their scope because they think that that will reduce their revenue and so Getting them to to niche down, you know, because you've been really, really clear. You've been really clear
0: there. It's a niche is the sexiest thing about business, isn't it? I, so one of the things that that I've been doing, actually, kind of a reinvention or a reimagination or, or kind of a, a pivot, but a new business that we launched at the beginning of the pandemic was to take everything that we learned about making me into a thought leader and building this, you know, platform and footprint for me as a brand i was like you know we could sell that to other people everybody else lost their speaking platform so coaches consultants authors ceos people who who have a need to share and monetize their expertise and i have met i mean like i don't know how many coaches i know i probably know i probably know 500 coaches of various types right but what's been really interesting to me is in the in the launch of that business and taking that business out there and just talking to literally hundreds of people, the ones, the coaches, for instance, who have niched to this very specific place are the ones that we are able to create the the most bang for their buck right they get the ho- highest ROI on their marketing and sales efforts because they're so relentlessly focused i mean you should hear some of the ideas for niching that i have heard from from coaches over the past couple of months but it's incredible because going deep and having that very very deep focus and having an ideal customer profile within a niche is so incredibly powerful because you know, if you are one of those people, you know your home when you see that person, right? Does that make sense?
1: It does. The other thing that that I often find when I'm working with clients is that, and I was just thinking about, uh, it struck me when you were talking about Lindsay. So how many people in the United, how many Lindsays are there in the United States? Probably not millions. Not many. Enterprise, SaaS, put together, like, you know, like it started to feel to me like hundreds at max. Yeah. Probably less.
0: Maybe. Yeah. So, so when I think about mid cap growth companies, it's not just enterprise software. So, like the category, like the category is less important than it is a mid cap growth company. It is a a business that has between Say 10 and 500 million dollars in revenue. Like, we love those companies, but we also work with Dell, which is one of the biggest companies in the world. I've worked with Microsoft, I've worked with NBC Universal, like these huge companies. But our sweet spot really is I'm looking for those people who are in growth mode, the ones that are not like just trying to grow incrementally, but the ones who are trying to 10x their business. And they have a lot at stake to do it. So they've received private equity money. Maybe they've done a spin off. Maybe they have a new CEO. Maybe they are launching a new product or they woke up one morning and they're, they're getting their asses handed to them by a competitor. So there has to be something going on. So these, these psychographics and attitudes and behaviors are more important to me than the category. So yeah, I like enterprise software because it moves really, really quickly. But I also like, oil and gas test and measurement and production equipment, I also, like right now, I love construction because this is a place where you can really, really make a difference. I love, I talked to somebody the other day that, that does the painting, like of the floors in industrial facilities. I've got a client that makes industrial quality air purifiers and filters that are capable of screening out 99.99999% of virus particles. Like these are the businesses, when you look at the most valuable businesses in the world, there are so many of them that you've never heard of. Those are the ones where branding makes such a difference in helping them carve out the role. And so branding to me is it's not just the way that you show up in the world. It truly is a strategic exercise. Like I don't even think about a logo or a campaign or a tagline or anything like that until you've you've had the kick in the ass from us to get that focus, to figure out what is your niche? Who is your ideal customer? What are your values and beliefs? How do you elevate your customer in their lives and in their work, right?
1: What problem of theirs do you solve? How are you gonna be the best in the world at it? And what are you passionate about? What makes you money?
0: Yeah, 100%. It's the the intersect with the ICA, ICA guy, like the intersection of all those things, right? And branding is one of the things that helps with that inclusive of the client, right? Inclusive of the client or inclusive of the customer. The the piece of the intersection of those things, what are you good at, what can you make money at, what are you passionate about, blah blah blah. If you don't include how you can solve a problem for someone else in the world, it's really hard to make money off of that. And so branding is you know, the sum total of your vision, mission, values, core purpose, like your core ideology, all of those things, inclusive of your customers' values and beliefs and how they need to have their lives elevated. And
1: if you go back to Dell, how are you elevating the lives of some of the people who are buying some of the Dell products that you've helped sell more of?
0: Yeah, the work that we do at Dell, we've been working with Dell since I want to say I started this company in two thousand and three, and I think we signed up our first Dell client in two thousand and four. So this is a longstanding relationship, and I've seen many evolutions of this business. I've seen it like I've seen it go public. I've seen it go back private. I've seen it go like become Dell Technologies. I've seen it acquire or be acquired by other ginormous organizations. And one thing that has remained consistent through that entire trajectory is the brand, right? And the kind of work that we do for Dell actually is pretty far downstream where we are taking the brand to market through content, through marketing activities. And so the the work that we do there is about... Figuring out for an individual campaign, let's take, for instance, we do a lot of work in uh, information security, right? So security solutions, hot, hot, hot topic right now, always a hot topic, but increasingly hot now that we've taken everybody's workforce and we've thrown them out to their homes and they're working on their home computers and their iPhones and iPads. And like they have a, a hamster in a wheel that's generating the power for their houses in some in some cases, like you're basically opening up your whole world to all kinds of disaster right and so when you think about how does how does dell like elevate that it person's self concept how do you make them a hero in their own story the work that we're doing is figuring out what is a day in the life for that person like what is a day in the life for the guy at that i always use this example of like a like a mid-sized Uh, law office, for instance. You have a law office, they have multiple locations, Houston, Dallas, Austin, San Antonio. All of a sudden, everybody who worked inside in a highly, highly secure and privacy-intensive environment where a lot of your stuff was contained on-premise, and now all of a sudden you've closed down cities and you send your employees out to the world to go and try and do their law work, right? They don't have access to your internal servers, all of a sudden, you're setting up remote access. You are trying to make it so that no one can infiltrate your your network and expose people's information, privacy, all this kind of all this kind of stuff. As the IT guy, your life royally sucks, doesn't it? Like it sucks. The pandemic has made every IT person's life absolutely effing suck because we threw something at them that they probably weren't prepared for. Right. So the work that we're doing with Dell is trying to figure out what is the specific job that this it guy is hiring Dell for. So a little bit like the Clayton Christensen jobs to be done theory. I mean, you know, thank goodness that, that Dr. Christensen, you know, created that it it makes it for the people who are very analytical, Harvard Business School types, I I can point to that to say when I ask the question of what's the one thing they get from you they can't get from anyone else, it really translates to what is the specific job they're hiring you to do. They're not hiring Dell for Dell's equipment. They're not hiring Dell for Dell's expertise. They're hiring Dell to prevent them from getting an ass-chewing right? And so our work is about articulating that and sending out these rays of attraction to those people and being like, I know you're afraid of getting an ass chewing because it's a clusterfuck out there right now. And I know that you would like to go to bed before 10 o'clock tonight or two in the morning. And the last thing you want is a call from the CEO of your organization saying, I can't get on the server, right? My email doesn't work. Yeah. So we've got something for you. So if you see marketing copy from Dell that says, we know that your life is a clusterfuck, you know that I wrote that. Okay. <laughs> no, just kidding. That's, obviously we do it on brand and on on tone and on voice and all that kind of stuff, but just that is the work of branding. And that's where that can come in and, and really create this environment and platform for success for organizations, especially in the B2B space is if you think about your customer as a human being like as a as a person and not a not a machine and certainly not a procurement department when people say i sell to i sell to mid enterprise software companies i'm like do you sell to a building like are you sell, are you selling to a building with windows and and steel and brick no, i don't think so like there are human beings behind every purchase and that's the big thing to remember
1: and the problem is that lots of companies don't know what job it is that their customers have hired them to do so some customers some customers have figured it out and bought it but often the company is unaware of where they sit in the market relative to their competitors
0: so here's the big thing this is one of the the biggest no duh things that i always think about when i ask in the customer qualification process, like when we're pitching business and, you know, talking to folks, I always ask the question, I, I'm like, who is your ideal customer? And, and it's very diagnostic when they're like, yeah, we sell to a building that houses some, you know, enterprise software company. And then I asked them the question of what is the specific thing that people hire you for that they can't get from anyone else? If they don't know the question, I was like, you know, there's a cure for that. Right. And they're like, what? And I said, ask them. So if you remember Dr. Christensen's famous story about McDonald's milkshakes and figuring out what is the job of McDonald's milkshake, if you remember the story as he told it, as people drove out of the drive-thru with a milkshake in their hand, the students stopped them and asked them what was the specific job they hired that milkshake to do for them. And what they found out was and you know the story goes for people who are listening to this who maybe don't don't know it the most mcdonald's milkshakes were sold between 7 and 9 in the morning and they were sold through the drive through you know there's a lot of assumptions about why people were buying milkshakes between 7 and 9 in the morning we heard things like uh maybe they worked the night shift and this was like an indulgence or or maybe they were buying it because it was something that covered the major food groups or maybe they thought it was like a good nutritious meal replacement well what what the students found out by asking people as they were driving out of the the drive through with the milkshake in their hand was where are you going and what job did you hire this milkshake to do and what they learned was it was a boredom cure because it's something that it takes a long time to drink and it was something that people could do with their hands when you know that, then you can market directly to that. You can be McDonald's, and you can throw up a billboard that basically says, "Long commute, a milkshake's a great friend, right? and when when you understand like the job behind the job, it when I ask question number two about branding, which is the what's the one thing that people get from you they can't get from anyone else, that's like figuring out what is your milkshake job. And so, for Dell, the milkshake job is to make sure that that IT dude gets to sleep at least one night this week.
1: Yeah, fab. Uh, what else puts you off clients? So I'm thinking, I'm thinking most of my clients probably wouldn't qualify to work with you because they don't fit your, they don't fit your core description and they probably couldn't answer that question when I meet them. But that's interesting. It's interesting. You know, qualifying questions are different. So I just wondered what else, what other misconceptions you regularly see that are getting in the way of business growth?
0: So back to your statement about your your clients probably wouldn't qualify. If they don't qualify by size they may qualify by attitude, right? They may qualify by psychographics, by behavior, and you don't need to know the answer to the question of what's the milkshake job that people hire you to do, because that's my job is to help you figure that out. Right. So, yeah, I don't want you, I don't want you to think like, we're so exclusive. Um, you know, (laughs) (laughs) we are also in, we are also in, I'll say we're in rebuilding mode. So, you know, really sort of doubling down on who those ideal ideal clients are. Um, and what was the question that was in there i was like so flustered by the fact i can't believe that somebody would say you 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 couldn't work with our clients i'm like no i can work with them <laughs> <one." laughs> no i was saying i was saying what
1: else gets in the way of people growing their business what branding misconceptions are holding are also holding people back
0: yeah, branding misconceptions or perceptions that are holding people back. Uh, number one, that branding is a marketing activity is something that holds organizations back. Branding is an always on leadership level ownership activity. The CEO and the executive team must own branding. They don't necessarily need to like be part of the delivery of the brand through marketing but they own the brand because the brand exists in 360 degrees around the company. It's internal, it's external. The brand is the experience of the entire organization. If your brand experience is disconnected from your brand articulation, you become United Airlines, right? United Airlines, their stated brand promise is we're the most caring airline in the world. I'm sorry. If you're the most caring airline in the world, do you drag that poor Dr. David Dow out of an airplane seat down the middle of a plane and draw blood? No, you do not. Right. That whole failing was a crisis of culture and a crisis of leadership for the organization, not a singular mistake made by a gate agent at whatever airport that was where that flight originated. And that's why, like, branding is executives have to own it. So, I would say 9 times out of 10 it is the CEO who initiates a conversation with us and generally we are the the process that we use and the methodology that we use requires relentless alignment. So the kind of work that you do with clients it very much follows a, a similar model that everybody everybody has to be aligned up and down throughout the entire company because you cannot divorce your brand from your culture. You cannot divorce your brand from your leadership. Your core values are part of your brand and you have to use your core values to attract to you people who are aligned with those core values or else you have like a mismatch, right? And so that's another, that's a big misconception is that branding is the responsibility of the marketing department. I'm here to tell you it is absolutely not.
1: Well, and what the way that shows up is that the marketing department have a thing called the brand values and the company has something called core values and they're different. And that just makes that, that just makes no sense at all.
0: One of my favorite things to do when I'm, when I'm working on new business is to talk about our core values as an organization and explain how those core values are a benefit to our clients. So our core values, we have one core value. The first one is called yes. And, and I explain we built this business on saying yes to as many things as we possibly could over the years, which also means when you come to us with an idea that on the surface seems like a no, we treat it like a yes and so what our clients what our clients feel from that is that they feel valued, acknowledged and heard, right? Second core value, we do hard things. I always always explain this to clients and I said, our core value we do hard things means a the work of branding is hard because it requires you to make decisions, it requires you to to slaughter sacred cows and and get rid of institutional myths. I have never been through a branding engagement where there wasn't some friction. You're not doing it right if there isn't any. So we do hard things. Are you willing to do hard things with us, right? Number three, core value, be the CEO of your own desk. I tell them all the time, I'm like, you're talking to me right now or you're talking to someone else on our leadership team i can assure you that every single person in this business all the way down to our most entry level intern manages themselves and their activities with ownership and empowerment that's an accountability value we hold people accountable and they hold themselves accountable which our clients really appreciate and then i go on and i describe the rest of the the values to them and they have a deep appreciation of an understanding of who we are and what we stand for and how that's going to benefit them. And then they see themselves in those core values. I'll also say clients a hundred percent of the time, they're like who wrote those core values? And I'm like, I did. And they always ask us to like, can you help us rewrite the our core values? Because other companies have these imitatable, insert brand name here, core values, like integrity, respect for others, you know, work hard, play hard, carry your own bags. Like none of that is differentiating. Your core values is an, an amazing way to start working on your brand.
1: Totally. And also to reflect it back on your core customer and say, write this in a way that there is value to the customer because otherwise it might differentiate on employees, but it doesn't help you make it really easy for customers to, to pick you.
0: Yeah. I have, um, my coach, like my, my strategic coach, uh, he always tells the story of a client that he worked with that had a core value. They were a, like a home services company. They had a core value of old ladies love us right? It's brilliant, isn't it? You know, everything you need to know about that. Old ladies love us. And I I just, you know, I I strive for having that kind of clarity that is not only for the organization, but also for the client. So we manage through the lens of our core values, but we also lead our clients through the lens of our core values. And that's really where brand meets strategy.
1: Fab. Deb, what is it that you know now that you wish you'd known earlier?
0: Ah, so this is a big learning learning that came really from my experience of the pandemic. So I, I think that we probably originally met at an event and I, prior to the pandemic over the past like three years, I had been moving gradually further and further away from just running my business and being a speaker and a workshop leader and, and working hands-on with folks again, which I love. Uh, And when the pandemic hit, like, seven months' worth of speaking engagements got canceled. I lost 100% of my personal income and, in the spirit of the Stockdale Paradox, like, faced the brutal facts of my own reality and asked myself this question, which is, how can I be indispensable to people at this time? And I pivoted to, okay, well, I'm not out there getting paid to give this information away. I'm gonna give this information away for free. And I took to the internet and over the past four and a half months, I've done something close to 100 online events, both that were my own, like I have a weekly thing, but also for other organizations like EO, YPO, Vistage, for coaches and their clients, for you know the International Association of Business Communicators, like companies, like whatever. I just offered it up for free and I gave my expertise away for free without the expectation of anything coming to me in return. Now, fast forward four and a half months, for the last month, and I'm not kidding you, for the last month, my phone has not stopped ringing to the point that i had to like shut down and go on hiatus from my little internet show because we are we are writing proposals like crazy and i've been able to rapidly transform our business model we had two huge Two huge problems as a services company. One of those was we had an over-reliance on a single client. And the other one was we were working almost exclusively on a project basis, which means as soon as you finish a project, could be a huge project, $500,000 project, but when it's done, you have to hustle for the next project. Over this period of time, I've been able to rapidly transform the business model to more monthly recurring revenue and also reduce our reliance on that one client. Because by the way, they were in danger of like going out of business themselves. So what I wish I would have known is that sharing my expertise generously without obligation for free, what I wish I would have known was that that had the power to grow my community by 200%. And create this active, engaged community that was going to lean forward and tell me what they want to buy from me. We made an offer to someone of employment on Friday. Like we are, you know, we had one quarter of badness and now I'm breathing into the paper bag. I'm getting ready to get some soul marketing paper bags printed up for everyone to to breathe into because if I had known that just giving it away for free. And so the decision that I've made is maybe I'm never going to travel for another speaking engagement again. Maybe I'm never going to do that. Maybe I'm never maybe I'm never going to ask for10,000 dollars to step on a stage again. Maybe I just need to continue giving it away for free. So that that was like a huge eye-opener for me.
1: Oh, that's sensational. That is sensational. And, it, and there are, you know, I've got a number of clients who've who've gone through similar pivots in their business because they couldn't take the hard decision about the cash flow, and then all of a sudden the cash flow wasn't there anymore and they've got no decision to make. And so they have to, you know, they have to change. So no, fantastic story. Good stuff. What, uh, along the way, what, um, what books you've got, you've got two books, you've got branding is sex
0: and irrational loyalty. So branding is sex is the how to book. That's the one that explains this methodology that I talked about here. And then irrational loyalty is a book that wrote itself, um, between, between the 2016 election and and President Trump giving us a master class in strategic branding, which, you know, whatever your opinion is on the guy, he showed us how it was done for real uh, and sort of like the ensuing changes that came, the dumpster fire that was Uber and Papa John's and Matt Lauer and Harvey Weinstein and all, all of these different things. That's what irrational loyalty is about. That book is Irrational Loyalty, Building a Brand That Thrives in Turbulent Times. Um, That book is super timely because it will help organizations understand what role do I have in these market-level conversations that are taking place right now? How do I show up with a set of values and beliefs and attract and repel the right kinds of ideal customers, right? But books that I've read along the way, I always recommend to people the seminal book on brand positioning, which is just called positioning, I, that is a book that sort of stands the test of time, and that is uh, Reese and Trout wrote that book. Another one is brand asset management. Brand asset management. has this very sort of, you know, clinical title but brand asset management is to branding is sex, what Harvard university is to, you know, a party school. So I'm the party school version of that, but brand asset management for the people who are a little bit more analytical and whatever. So that's a really, really good book. I also love this book called the discipline of market leaders by Michael Tracy. It's an older book, which really talks about this notion that there are three kinds of companies there are customer companies, there are product companies, and there are concept companies. And it talks about that the discipline of market leaders is that they decide which one of those they are and they align their entire strategy and operations around that. It's a fascinating book. It still applies today it's something that i refer to a lot in consulting and then the final one i would recommend is called the four by scott galloway right he's the one who said like as you know as you move down the body the margins the margins get bigger and he talks about how apple sort of identifies with the genitals on a human being. Um, Scott Galloway, a brilliant, brilliant strategist, um, great writer. That's a a super dense book, but it's a really nice inside look at uh, what's inside some of the biggest, most valuable brands in the world. Final book recommendation, if you haven't read it, it's called Disrupted. And it's actually a fun book. And, uh, off the top of my head, I can't remember the guy who wrote it, but he used to be the tech writer at business week. And when he lost his job, he got a job as a content specialist at HubSpot and he goes inside of HubSpot. This is an expose on startup culture and it is crazy. And it is so funny and you can read it over the course of one weekend. And so like, if you if you want to read something that's like an allegory of how not to do it, and just the big personalities and all of the, all of the stereotypes of startup culture and startup life, especially in the software world, this is a, a great book. And I like business books, but I also like fun books about business, and that's one of them.
1: Deb, that's absolutely brilliant. Uh, two books from you and five recommendations. That's um, five
0: recommendations. I made five recommendations. Yeah,
1: you've you've, you've outdone yourself. That's brilliant. <laughs>
0: Good. I'm very competitive. Who gave the most recommendations? Who else has been on this show who gave more recommendations than me?
1: I don't know, but not very many people.
0: (laughs) You know, I, what I find is a lot of people who recommend books have never read the books. Really? Do you reckon? Yes. There's a lot of, so, so think about it this way. It's branding, right? The books I Ah. read and, and it gives me bragging rights if I'm like, okay. So like if, you you can't see behind me, but I have I have stacks and stacks of books, and then out in the office there are books, and at home I have a room with books. I can honestly say that every book that I have in my possession, I have at least opened. Right, <laughs> some of them may just have like the ring from my coffee mug on them. But I hear people talking, so so this is the book that I think is the most bragged about that no one has read because I read this book and it sucks. Is called the Untethered Soul by Michael Singer. Have you ever read this?
1: Never even this heard is, of it. This is
0: like, so, so another guy wrote a book, which is called The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, which is basically the same book, but again, it's like the pop culture version of it. So The Untethered Soul is this incredibly dense, rich book. People like, I've had five people in my life say, you need to read this. I think maybe because um, they think I need to just calm the F down. But I read this book and, and I, and I, I can get through like three or four pages and I'm like, can't do it, just can't do it, won't do it. But people all the time are like, oh, yes, I'm, I'm a total dev- devotee of singer. And, you know, I'm like, no, you're not. No one has ever actually read this effing book. You just like what it says about you for people to think that you read that book.
1: Oh, uh, that's funny. That's funny. How, seeing, the light, seeing everybody in your life through a brand lens, That it, uh, that is very interesting.
0: It is interesting. And the other, you know, the other thing is like, here's the other sort of like secret thing about me is that I grew up in a brandless existence. And maybe this branding thing is like a total reaction to a very weird childhood. So I have these weird Eastern European parents who were extremely pragmatic and very practical and there weren't brands in the old country. So So when, when they came to the United States, like we didn't have branded anything. I would take my unbranded foods and, and clothing and toys. Like I remember this specifically when I was a little kid, the big thing to have was like this Barbie doll head. It was Barbie's head and she sat on the table and you could do her hair and you could put on her makeup and she was Barbie and her head was like the size of my head. Well, I didn't get that. I got a toy. It was called Bobby. And she didn't have blonde hair. She had dark brown hair like me. And and instead of having like the little makeup tray underneath her, she had a suction cup on the bottom. So you could just like, you know, throw her down on the table and she'd be stable and whatever. But, you know, my parents were like, we don't buy brand name anything. We don't do brand name anything. And then when I got a driver's license, I was like, I'm going straight to McDonald's. Um, And that was like my first McDonald's hamburger. And so that's how I developed this fascination with brands and you know, it was manifest destiny. Now I have a daughter who she now works for us and she's, she's kind of brand strategist in training. She grew up in a brand world. Right. And so she understands everything about it and she's very astute about it, but it, that's the, that's the weird hidden secret is my, my weird Eastern European parents who were like, no, we will not have any brands here. No, <laughs> no new <guys> for you.
1: <laughs> Dev, that's absolutely brilliant. It's been, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you today.
0: Yes, you too. Thank you so much. It's been so fun.
1: Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. As a token of your appreciation, it'd be fantastic if you could go wherever you're listening and leave me a review. Those reviews really help other people find this podcast. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to Dominic Monkhouse. Dot com forward slash podcast and there you'll find some fantastic show notes additional reading and links relating to this episode you can also find my blog and the past editions of my subjectively not crap newsletter the simplest thing to do on the website is to sign up and i'll update you each week on the most interesting articles that i've read on all things relating to scaling up high performing teams net promoter score company culture etc for social, you can find me on Twitter at Dom Munkhouse and LinkedIn at Dominic Monkhouse. although LinkedIn is probably the best way to reach me, share your questions and comments, and, and perhaps even recommend a guest for a future edition of the Melting Pot podcast. Thanks for listening.